I guess my question for you broadly about all of these efforts on the ESG front is, uh, do you think they're working? And what I mean by that is, are you seeing, are you starting to see kind of distinguishable differences in pricing for issuers that are making progress on the ESG front versus those that are not? Yes. Yes, I do think it's working. Although I will say slowly, if I think about bonds, where disclosure is a little bit better than it is in loans. You definitely see a difference in the pricing of green or sustainability-linked bonds versus a vanilla um, high-yield bond issue. Um, In the loan space, it tends to be a bit more focused around ESG ratchets. It's something that started to come into the market at the back end of last year, and it's continued yeah. into this year. And yeah. you know, what I've seen I'm, that in the private credit market as well. Yeah, so you know, companies that have specific targets on, you know, carbon emissions, um, senior management diversity, use of renewables, and so on and so forth. And if they hit these targets, the margin on their debt can be reduced you know, by anywhere from 10 to to 50 basis points. So in that sense, yes, it's working because where companies can demonstrate the right steps, um, they are able to benefit from a lower cost of capital. That was Chris Sawyer, High Yield Portfolio Manager at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number two of season five. All season long, we'll be bringing you the latest on factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to be the first to know about our latest episodes, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. You can find us by searching Streaming Income. My guests today are David Mahalik, head of U.S. High Yield and U.S. Public Fixed Income at Bearings, and Chris Sawyer, a portfolio manager for several of the firm's European and global high-yield strategies. Uh, This conversation was a whirlwind tour through all things high-yield. We talked about the outlook for high-yield bonds and loans against the backdrop of potentially rising rates, uh, a still-healing economy, and of course, still so much uncertainty around the path that COVID takes. Uh, We also discussed where pockets of value exist today across the credit spectrum, from high-yield bonds and loans to EM corporate debt to other parts of the credit universe like CLOs. And finally, we talked about ESG and whether or not all of the market's focus on this uh, very important topic is actually starting to impact the pricing for high-yield bond and loan issuers. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. Here are David Mahalik and Chris Sawyer. All right, David, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Greg. Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Great. I'm excited to have both of you guys here. Uh, And I'm hoping to use this conversation as a chance really to catch up generally on what's been going on in high yield markets 
and more specifically, you know, what could drive the performance going forward. So, you know, if we look at what's been going on so far, you know, we know that high yield has uh, rallied tremendously off the pandemic lows of uh, March 2020 and really has continued its strong performance uh, this year, at least year to date. Um, but as we look at markets today, obviously, there's quite a few uh, unknowns still, right? So we don't know where the virus goes from here. We don't know where economic growth goes from here. We don't know where rates and inflation go from here. So still a lot of unknowns. And then, of course, you all are tasked with the very difficult job of trying to manage credit strategies against all these unknowns. So um, so let's get into some of these. David, let's start with you. Um, you know, I'm interested in hearing what you are seeing and hearing from high-yield issuers today uh, that gives you a sense, either positive or negative, about the current state of the economy and maybe like the confidence that these borrowers have in the prospects for their own businesses. Well, well thanks for the question, Greg. All, all the unknowns you mentioned in your lead-in are what keep the job interesting, I guess. Uh, we've certainly come a really long way over the last year and a half since the March 2020 lows. And as you alluded to in your intro, the economic recovery we've seen has been very strong. You know, the first half of 2021 has been really strong across the board, really coming out of, you know, the November uh, vaccine announcement. You know, that really led to an opening of the economy in 2021. You know, in terms of the underlying companies we look at, the first half of the year earnings were very strong. And, and, and really through the second quarter, it was looking really optimistic into the second half of the year as well. Uh, clearly, the Delta variant and the spread of that in, in different geographies has thrown a little bit of uncertainty into the outlook. You know, we, we remain optimistic that, you know, that the pattern we saw in the UK and India in terms of it peaking fairly quickly, starting to see some signs of that in the US as well. So we continue to remain optimistic about the economic reopening with, again, a little bit of caution around the Delta variant. The underlying companies we look at, though, again, very strong earnings. You know, the, the level of defaults in the market are very, very low. Um, and any you know companies have generally had access to capital when they've needed it. Companies that are high quality of price debt at very low levels. Uh, companies have been investing, you know, focused on balance sheet management as well as as you know some of the capital that was raised last year at pretty high rates. We started to see some of that get refinanced as as companies have gotten more comfortable with with the outlook. So um, we're optimistic. The companies that we invest in, I think, are doing well. Uh, the demand environment is very strong. Uh, consumers, as you know, all the headlines would point to, are very flush with cash. You know, starting to see more services type companies opening up and benefiting from the economy reopening. Um, so as as we look forward, you know, we're pretty optimistic about credit quality in the market. Pretty optimistic about earnings outlooks. Uh, but but you know, a little bit cautious around the Delta variant. But I, I'm optimistic that that's not really going to create uh, a, a big long term ramification for the companies that we look at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that overview. I was uh, looking at some Bloomberg intelligence data yesterday that supports some of the the statements that you just made, uh, just looking at some of the fundamental uh, metrics around net debt to EBITDA, which this is for the US high yield bond market, which looks like it's back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, interest coverage looks, I think, as strong as it's been in a decade. So I think, uh, obviously, these companies have benefited uh, to a large degree from the economic reopening, but also uh, obviously the amount of liquidity that's awash in the system. Uh, and I want to talk more about that, but maybe first, Chris, give us a sense of um, 
you know, how the outlook uh, looks from a European perspective. Uh, you know, I'm curious if you see the same kind of underlying fundamental health in the European high yield issuers that you're looking at. Thanks. And, and the simple answer is, is yes, we do. And I, and I could echo a lot of, of David's comments, particularly in terms of how companies have performed through the first half of this year. We've seen, you know, a pretty sustained level of, of deleveraging through through H121. And as we sit here today, even though a lot of companies are starting to face some inflationary pressures, um, it looks like they are going to be able to sustain that deleveraging through the tail end of the year as well. Um, and the companies are proving to have quite good pricing power, both with their suppliers and also with their, their customers. Um, so you are managing to, to sort of mitigate the impacts of inflation, even if it is with maybe, you know, a month or, or a quarter lag, uh, should we say. Um, I think the other part, when we're talking about the, the sort of health of issuers, and it's very easy for us to always focus on the existing universe, the secondary market, um, but a massive theme, certainly for the first half of this year, and it's going to continue to be you know, as we go through the tail end and into 2022 has been issuance and, and what's the overall health of, of the new companies that are coming to our market uh, looking like. And I would say that despite all of the uh, financial press that no doubt lots of people listening to this will have seen around weakening of documentation, uh, adjustments to, to EBITDA, that actually the companies that are, that are coming to our market at the moment are of, of really pretty decent quality. Um, and I say that based on on two things. And, and first of all, it's the size of the businesses that we are seeing come to our market. Um, you know, the, the dry powder that private equity have has got bigger and bigger over the years, and that's allowed them to target larger M&A transactions, bigger businesses with that capital. Um, uh, but we're also seeing, you know, the amount of equity invested in these transactions being incredibly consistent for all the other froth that there might be in markets more generally. Um, we are still seeing capital structures where equity makes up, you know, 40 or, or 50% of the total enterprise value of a of a business. So from a debt holder's perspective, whether that be, you know, in secured loans or, or unsecured in the form of bonds, you're lending money to these very large, well-established businesses that exist through cycles um, at pretty conservative uh, LTVs. Yeah, I think Chris's point about you know the the quality of the market's an important one, and and as a way to illustrate that, in the U.S., the bond market, uh, as we look at it today, is almost 60% double B rated. And if you compare that to 10 to 15 years ago, the market was you know call it 35 or so percent double B rated. So you know, there's a lot of headlines around spread levels today and that they're at relatively tight levels. And, and that's true. If you look at a historical basis, spreads are relatively tight, although we still think there's value in the market. You know, for that spread level, you're getting, you know, a market that's 60 percent double B rated for investors that have been in the high yield market for a long time. That's a pretty significant change in the, in the quality of the underlying issuers. And there's several reasons for that. I think if you look at the bond market, Last year, you know, during the pandemic, we saw 200 plus billion of investment grade companies that got downgraded. And while that's, you know, painted with a negative brush, a company getting downgraded into high yield, when you look at the, within the high yield market, those are some of the biggest and highest quality companies that we have. And you're now starting to see as the economic recovery is taking hold, these companies being upgraded. And so we think that's a tailwind to the market. And then also just having high quality double B companies that were in the market already, 
issuing to just you know shore up their balance sheet over the course of the last year has led to growth in that part of the market as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because it's obviously not an apples to apples comparison with you know the high yield market of a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. Uh, the complexion of it changes and the credit rating, uh, the, the credit ratings of of, of the index uh, change uh, over time, uh, as you've just mentioned, and you know combine that with the point you made about. Uh, defaults remaining pretty low, and, and it it tells maybe a little bit of a different story than you would get if you were just looking at, you know, headline spread levels um, alone. Um, one of the questions I had uh, for you was just around some of the quote unquote COVID sectors or non COVID sectors. So, Chris, I don't know as you you mentioned that the health of the companies that you're seeing in the primary market, you know, you're seeing some high quality issuers come to market. Um, how are you thinking generally about the distinction between the, the sectors that are, uh, you know, COVID impacted and those that are not? Because I've seen, you know, year to date, th- there's been a strong rally in not only, you know, lower rated credits, but also, you know, the hotel operators, retail, restaurants. I mean, how, how are you guys kind of putting that in context? Uh, it might be slightly cliched, but the reality is you you look at each name on an individual basis you know one hotel operator is not the same as the other it could be targeting you know a very different um, customer base it could be reliant on you know domestic demand rather than international travel and and so on and and so forth so you you literally have to sort of get into the weeds of things if you like um, and understand each business um, individually that of course presents its its challenges because it takes time analyst time and resource to to be able to do that but i think if you're going to navigate that part of the market successfully it's it's something that you you definitely need to do i think you know what is fair to say is that you know originally people maybe felt that 2021 was going to be you know a year with some disruption and then 2022 was something that might resemble a, a year of normality i think as dave has, has already mentioned with you know the spread of the delta variant in in parts of the world it's very probable that some of these sectors will continue to see some degree of disruption into 2022. So, you know, where the focus really continues to need to be um, is around liquidity for those businesses. What does an elongated period of disruption look like? Um, And are the companies able to manage that? And do they have balance sheet flexibility um, to be able to to do so? Um, I think one of the most two of the most topical sectors in that sense you've obviously got the companies that are associated with with international travel and there's lots of debate going on as to you know who can go where and if you can go there what level of testing or quarantine do you, do you need to do but the other one which is a bit more domestic focused both in the US and in the UK is obviously the, the cinema industry and literally you know an hour or two before we're recording this podcast you've you've seen uh, Paramount one of the big movie studios put back um you know the releases of some of its big films for the back end of this year top gun, like the top new gun top gun exactly. push back. you've yeah. seen it as well and a mission well, it's waited seven. it's waited since 1986 so it could probably <laughs> wait a couple more, more months right you know but it's the sort of thing that you know we hoped a few months ago that we were through that you know we we, we felt maybe you know at the start of the spring that that actually, you know, the back end of this year, we could look at with some certainty. And these kind of things are just a reminder to us that we, we continually need to be on our toes, we need to be flexible, and we need to continue to, to reevaluate um, as we go. Yeah, and I, and I would, if you let me, Greg, just paint with a really broad bu- brush, I would say that 
non-COVID type businesses are performing exceptionally well because of the very strong demand environment. And, and, and now the issue that some of them are having are supply chain issues, which are, you know, in the headlines every day, chip shortages for automakers, things like that. The COVID stuff, you know, Chris alluded to some of those industries. There is a little bit of a longer tail, we think. But on a, on a positive side, there, there has been some level of demand recovery. So they're generally open and operating. They may be at 50 or 60 percent of where they were pre-COVID, but they've taken a lot of cost actions. And so in many cases, they're at least cash flow break even at this point with upside as the economy continues to open. And then the other good thing you know, for those types of companies is that there is capital available. So even if the runway is a little bit longer, you know, they're able to access markets you know, at, at, at you know, different points in their capital structure to raise additional liquidity to, to get to the other side of that longer runway. And so, and so those, in fact, and we can talk, I'm sure we'll talk about sort of, you know, where we're seeing value, some of those tactical opportunities in those types of sectors we think are really attractive and, and we're taking advantage of some of those as we speak. Okay. Yeah. Really good points. Um, so the, idea of capital being available. Let's talk about that because, uh, you know, obviously one of the biggest drivers for all risk assets really is, you know, what's going on with monetary policy, you know, how much liquidity is in the system, what central bankers are going to do. So, you know, I know there's been some probably mixed signals from central bankers uh, this year. There's, you know, you're starting to see more headlines on uh, tapering, you know, there's questions of, you know, when that actually happens and what it actually looks like. Uh, but as you and the team uh, start to think about that, David, I mean, you know, in terms of the the outlook for rates and what that could mean for high yield and what it could mean for the broader credit spectrum as well, are you taking steps today to actually position the portfolios in anticipation of interest rate moves one way or the other? So rates is always an interesting topic with with you know, that we have when we're debating internally, when we're talking with clients, you know, a lot of people are wrong on rates a lot of time. Um, and so if you look at where we've been over the course of this year, you look in the U.S., the 10-year, we started the year sort of just under 1%. We got as high as about 175 at the end of the first quarter. You know, again, economic recovery optimism, growth optimism. And then through the second quarter, perplexing to a lot of people, rates move lower down to the 120 area. And you've seen a little bit of, you know, of higher rates as in the third quarter. And so it's been it's been a challenging thing. We, we generally were, you know, like like most people expecting rates to move higher through the course of the year um, as the economy recovered and opened. And, and so what we did in the portfolios, you know, as we look at we look at a lot of things, we look at rates, we look at, you know, duration in the portfolios. Um, and we had a general bias in our multi-strap portfolios to add a little bit more loan exposure. As most folks will know, loans are floating rate, so um, they don't have interest rate duration. So when you look at our multi-strap portfolios, uh, you saw us adding a bit to floating rate over fixed rate. You know, the other reason for the loans being a little bit more attractive is, as I mentioned, in, in the bond market, you see it being a much higher quality market. Um, and spreads generally grinding tighter. In the loan market, you've seen a lot more LBO issuance in that market. And so that tends to be more single B oriented. And so you had a little bit higher credit spread available in that market, and then you didn't have the rate risk. And so that on average is where we tended to to put capital this year. But you know, we would continue as I think we look forward to expect rates to generally move higher. You mentioned you know, the Fed starting to talk about tapering. Again, we are optimistic about the economic recovery, despite some of the Delta variant headlines. 
Um, so that's sort of where we're leaning and how we position the portfolios. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and obviously, you know, we, we look at, you know, spreads may be somewhat compressed uh, right now. Uh, but of course, looking across the entire investment landscape, there's not a lot of places for investors to necessarily generate uh, yield today, uh, you know, given where where rates are. So loans is really interesting. Chris, I'm interested in your view on the asset class. Obviously, it's seen as a bit of a natural hedge against rising rates, given the floating rate nature that David just mentioned. But what do you see in there uh, in the loan market in terms of issuance? And then how would you guys think about that, you know, uh, addressing, you know, value in loans versus bonds? Yeah, sure. And, and you're absolutely right in terms of how loans are viewed and, and being a natural hedge against rising rates. I mean, the, the, the clearest way you can see that is in the form of the, the US retail fund flows. There's been pretty consecutive weekly inflows since the tail end of last year um, for, for US loans. Um, and that has, has broadly mirrored the move that, that Dave alluded to um, in, in the 10-year Treasury. Um, we don't really have the same uh, way of measuring flows um, within Europe, but from an institutional investor-based perspective, which is where a lot of the demand for European loans comes from, um, we've definitely seen you know, inflows, you know, across the platform, across a broad range of, of products. Um, in terms of how the market itself is evolving over the course of this year, um, new issue has been, you know, the dominant theme. Um, it's looking very, very likely that 2021 will be a record year for, for issuance, both in, in the US and in Europe, eclipsing even the levels seen you know, pre pre Lehman's. Um, I would say we could probably split the year up so far into two halves. I think the first quarter was characterized by a lot of refinancing activity. Um, companies that maybe raised debt at slightly elevated yields last year just to, to give themselves balance sheet flexibility and protection, um, able to reprice at, at lower yields. Um, but certainly since, you know, Easter time, we've seen a, a big step up um, in the amount of M&A activity, the amount of LBO acti activity that, that, that David referenced, um, driven by private equity uh, sponsors. You know, they spent a lot of last year you know, fighting fires, should we say, uh, and using their dry powder to support portfolio companies and, and their tact has really changed and it's now very much back on, on M&A. That looks set to continue as we go through the end of the year. Most of the investment banks that we, we speak to tell us they're kind of at their underwriting limits for, for sub-investment grade credit. So um, we should expect to see a very strong calendar um, as we all go back to the office in the next week or so um, and then through to, to Thanksgiving, which is the sort of typical period that, that markets look at this at this end of the year. Um, now, of course, with the, the strong supply, there needs to be demand on the other side. It's all very good and well. There have been lots of issuance, but if nobody wants to buy it, it's not much good. Um, but CLOs, which are the sort of main driver of, of demand for the loan asset class, have also seen very high levels of issuance this year. Um, and just like the underlying loans, they're probably going to have a record year of issuance. Um, as we kind of head into the, the back end of the year. So, you know, it's been, I would say, for the last three months, we've seen the supply-demand balance pretty much in equilibrium. I guess the, the positive, if you like, of having the, the strong supply side um, is that spreads, and, and Dave alluded to this a little bit earlier, that spreads have stayed at a level that is, in our opinion, still pretty attractive. Um, and you're looking in the low 400s, 
um, for, for loans these days. And, you know, that compares to, to bonds, which are in the low 300s. Now, it's not apples for apples, as we've said already on this, this podcast, you know, the rating differential between the two markets is there for everybody to see. Um, but is a 100 basis points or thereabouts differential appropriate if we think default rates are going to stay sub 1% for the next 12 to 24 months? Um, I would suggest probably not. And we should expect to see um, that differential close up a bit. Um, and uh, I would suggest, given the general view of, of economic improvement, that it's loan spreads that come down rather than bond spreads go up. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned CLOs, Chris and and David. You know, you were talking about uh, you know other pockets of value, and I'm curious if CLOs could be one of those pockets of value, or you know where where else you might be seeing value across the broader credit spectrum. So I know you and the team uh, manage uh, you know multi credit strategies that look across not only high yield bonds, loans, but also. Uh, emerging market corporate debt, structured credit, even distressed debt. So, you know, as you look across that broad landscape today, um, where are you seeing value today? Well, if you start, you know, with just the core asset, you know, core loan and bond asset classes, as Chris mentioned, you know, you're getting three to 400 over for sort of middle of the fairway credit in a, in a, in a risk environment where defaults are in July, it was one of the few months where there's been, there were zero defaults and the trailing 12 default rate is sort of 1%. And even, and even those are very sort of predictable names. There are, you know, a couple of energy names, maybe a retailer, but think things that the market sort of has already priced in. So three to 400 over with almost, you know, no defaults and, and the stress level in the market, you know, the name's trading at, you know, sort of below 90, below 80, however you define stress, even, even that's a very, very small part of the market. So we think that, you know, just the core loan and bond markets represent good value. Then you look beyond that, other areas that, that we found interesting this year, you mentioned CLOs. You know, if you think about a, you know, a double B bond spread at 200 over, you can buy a double B CLO tranche for, you know, 600 plus over. So three times the spread. The issue there, of course, is is liquidity in that market is lower. So you have to be mindful how much exposure you have in a, in a portfolio to that asset class. But we think, you know, that is an attractive place. We've just been mindful of the liquidity there in terms of how much exposure we've added. The other area we found value this year and been taking advantage of is emerging market corporate debt. That's a, a core asset class in our multi-strat portfolios as well. Uh, you get very similar you know, underlying corporate fundamentals. You, you get paid a premium because of the geography that, that some of these companies operate in. There's been a lot of headlines around China this year, and that's caused credit spreads generally to stay wider in emerging market corporate debt. And so we've taken advantage of that. And then the final area I'd say is some of these, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, some of these tactical opportunities for COVID impacted names where you're able to potentially provide liquidity financing, first lien, senior in the capital structure, uh, and, and get a really attractive risk premium for a company that you feel really good about long-term. Sure, it's got some short-term headwinds. Sure, the tail of COVID recovery looks a little longer, may take a little longer, but where your attachment point in those capital structures and the risk premium you're able to get is really, really attractive. And so around the edges of the portfolio where we find those opportunities, we're taking advantage of those as well. 
Makes sense. Uh, and I, the EM corporate debt is is really interesting. Uh, and it's we've been tracking what's been going on with all these uh, China crackdowns. And in fact, we just had uh, uh, your colleague Omotande Luol on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk through some of the implications for EM corporate debt. So that's a situation that continues to evolve, obviously. Um, Chris, question for you. Uh, from the European perspective, would you agree with everything David just highlighted? Any other, you know, obvious areas of value you're seeing there today? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with everything David's just said. I, I think from a European perspective, there's maybe a little sort of subcomponent of the high yield market, which is more prevalent over here than it is in the US, and that's senior secured bonds. Um, there's quite a high degree of overlap between senior secured bond issuers and, and loan issuers. Um, so, you know, whilst we've talked so far about, you know, why loan and bond spreads are not comparing apples for apples, actually this this part of the bond market and loans, you know, they are reasonably comparable. Um, you know, they do offer, a, a you know, a small pickup compared to where the sort of generic high yield market is. So if you're an investor that, you know, can't target loans for, for one reason or another, then senior secure bonds do actually offer quite a nice um, little pickup versus a generic high yield um, investment, of course, coming with all of the added benefits of, of security that loans have as well um, that you don't generally get through through a vanilla high yield um, investment. The, the added adage of them as well um, is that they tend to be slightly shorter duration, um, not zero duration like loans are, um, but they're generally a year or two shorter than their unsecured counterparts. And so, you know, if rates are something that you are are mindful of or fearful of, then, you know, senior secured bonds offer, you know, a fairly short duration option within the high yield market. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. I know the the team's written some papers and things like that on this asset class in the past. It seems like one that uh, can get overlooked uh, by the market, given that it's more of a sub-segment of high yield, but uh, appreciate you highlighting that. Um, Chris, I wanted to switch gears and talk about another theme that's uh, had a massive impact in recent years on high yield, but also obviously the investment industry more broadly, and that's ESG. Um, you know, We had your colleague Gareth Hall on the podcast earlier this year. And we discussed with him some of the steps that the team is taking to engage with issuers, uh, to incentivize change across a variety of industries, talking about things like, uh, you know, tracking uh, carbon emissions and, uh, you know, how you pull together data from companies that are not necessarily reporting data, all that kind of stuff. So I guess my question for you broadly about all of these efforts on the ESG front is, uh, do you think they're working? And what I mean by that is, are you seeing, are you starting to see kind of distinguishable differences in pricing for issuers that are making progress on the ESG front versus those that are not? Let's let's start there. Oh, good good question. Um, do, do I think it's working? Uh, yes, yes, I do think it's working. Although I will say slowly, um, you know, and 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 the reason I say that is. You know, within the loan and the bond markets, I guess there's two ways of, of looking as to whether ESG is, is working or not and whether it's creating a price differential between good and bad actors. If I think about bonds, where disclosure is a little bit better than it is in loans, data disclosure is a little bit better, um, you definitely see a difference in the pricing of 
green or sustainability linked bonds versus a vanilla um, high yield bond issue. Um, and even from companies that have got numerous bonds outstanding and you've got a proper curve to be able to look at, um, if they issue you know, a green bond, it does tend to price you know, call it 25, 50 basis points inside the curve. And, and there does tend to be pretty good follow on demand um, for that issue going forwards. Um, in the loan space, it tends to be a bit more focused around ESG ratchets. It's something that started to come into the market at the back end of last year, and it's continued yeah. into this year. And yeah. you know, what I've seen I'm, that in the private credit market as well. Yeah, so you know, companies that have specific targets on, you know, carbon emissions, um, senior management diversity, use of renewables, and so on and so forth. And if they hit these targets, the margin on their debt can be reduced you know, by anywhere from 10 to, to 50 basis points. So in that sense, yes, it's working because where companies can demonstrate the right steps, um, they are able to benefit from a lower cost of capital. Do I think it's working more generally where companies that investors like ourselves would perceive to be, you know, a good ESG business or a bad ESG business and there'd be a discernible difference in in pricing on those names. Um, I would say not so much yet, but it's coming. The reason it hasn't happened yet is for it to really accelerate. We need the data disclosure that you mentioned there and, and the efforts that, that Gareth and, and the team have taken through the various industry bodies. It needs that to improve. Um, there is a there is a weight of movement behind that, and issuers are listening. And of course, as we head into 2022, um, a number of European issuers are going to be forced to disclose certain bits of information. Um, so that will accelerate the shift, but we're not there yet. The other thing that will accelerate it is the movement between Article 6, 8 and 9 portfolios. And clearly, as you move up um, those articles, particularly into eight and nine, um, that you are going to see more and more capital focused towards those companies that can demonstrate good qualities from an ESG perspective. And, and like everything, you know, spreads go tighter where demand outstrips supply. And if demand is growing from that perspective, um, then you would accept, expect to see that differential start to, to widen out. Um, but I do think it's, it's something that probably the next 12 to 24 months are going to be quite key from that perspective. Yeah, that's great context. Um, and it's obviously an area of extreme focus, I think, for uh, for the market, for our investors, uh, for all parties. And actually, as, a, as one uh, data point to support that, the number one most read paper this year on our website is one from your colleague, Gareth Hall, called Three Challenges High Yield Managers Are Tackling Today. And it talks exactly about what you were just talking about, specifically um, some of the data challenges that are faced uh, for for high yield uh, issuers. So I know there's a lot going on there. I know the team's working uh, with a number of third part party organizations uh, to try to help solve some of these issues, whether it's improving disclosure from high yield issuers or uh, some of the efforts around developing ESG loan uh, indexes. I know there's a tremendous amount going on there. So I think it's going to be something certainly we're, we're going to be coming back to in terms of podcast conversations like this um, uh, over the next uh, year and years ahead. 
Um, okay, guys, uh, this has been kind of a whirlwind tour through high yield, but I just wanted to kind of give you a chance to uh, you know wrap it up with any key messages uh, that you might have. So David, maybe let's start with you. Uh, as you look ahead the next, let's say 12, 24 months, what do you think investors need to watch most closely in this space? Um, you know, given all your experience, uh, you know, managing credit portfolios, you know, good times, bad times, et cetera, et cetera. What would you focus on today? Well, there's certainly, you know, a lot of macro things to think about the, the, you know, as we come out of the, the Delta variant issues in the U S and what happens with COVID, some of the headlines around China and the long-term ramifications around different industries and supply chains and things like that. Um, are things that people need to think about. But at the end of the day, when you look at underlying corporate fundamentals, we think they're very, very good. And we've talked a lot about that in this conversation. And if and, in, and, and then your next question is, okay, if I believe corporate fundamentals are good, I want to look at where I invest and think about relative value. And if, if you look at the high yield market today, as we've talked about, you can earn a spread of 400 over. You look at your alternatives to that. You know, you can buy treasuries. You can look at the valuations there. You can look at investment grade corporates where you're going to pick up, you know, maybe a hundred basis point risk premium and you're buying into an eight to nine year duration asset class. And so, you know, certainly very high quality asset class, but if rates move, the potential for, for the impact on that asset class is significant. On the other end, you look at equities. There's a headline every day about, you know, the S&P and other different equity indices at all time highs. And so you look at the multiple you're paying there, you know, relatively high. I think when you look at high yield on a relative basis, it's still, you know, there's still value there. And we're certainly see, seeing that when we talk with our clients you know, around the globe, uh, we, we see interest in the asset class. We've seen, you know, flows into our business this year. So we're optimistic about the economic recovery. We're, we're very you know, bullish on the underlying corporate fundamentals. And then you look at valuation in the asset class, and and while they've come in a lot, we think they're still reasonable relative to the risk we see in the market. So, you know, as I sit here today, that's how I think about the next twelve to twenty-four months. And then most importantly, you know, when you're buying this asset class, you need to you need to do it, you know, from a bottoms-up standpoint. That's what bearings is all about. So we continue to look at every company that goes into our portfolio. At the end of the day, you know, that's the risk you're buying is the individual names in the portfolio, and that's what we spend the bulk of our time focused on. That's great. Chris, how about from your perspective? I would wholeheartedly agree with everything that David has just said. He has, he has left me nothing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, listen, uh, thank you both for, for joining. Uh, I certainly feel a lot smarter on high yield than I did a half hour ago. Uh, hopefully our listeners do as well. Uh, so uh, if you want to uh, learn more about this, read more from uh, David, Chris, our entire high yield team. Uh, go to bearings.com, check out the viewpoint section where we always have their latest thoughts. Uh, otherwise, uh, David, Chris, thanks for joining. This has been great. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to episode number two of season five of Streaming Income. Remember, if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.